Welcome to Yet Even Now on the Dayton Women in the Word podcast. The following teachings through the book of Joel came out of preparation for the 2020 Yet Even Now conference, which was canceled due to the novel coronavirus. We are overjoyed to be able to share these teachings prepared for this conference recorded in the fall of 2020. Study along with us through the book of Joel using the Yet Even Now Companion Guide found at DaytonWomenInTheWord.com. We pray these teachings will bless you as you hear from the Lord through the prophet Joel. Dayton Women in the Word exists to help women read their Bibles. If you have been blessed by our ministry and free resources, would you please consider giving a donation at DaytonWomenInTheWord.com slash donate. Hi friends, welcome to the last chapter of Joel and the last teaching in this series. My name is Natalie Hurt, and while I no longer live in the Dayton area or serve with the Dayton Women in the Word team, I am nevertheless excited to share what I believe is a relevant word for us, no matter what our season or location. In this session, we're going to look forward with Joel to the day of the Lord a concept which previous teachers have already introduced, a day when God will execute justice on his enemies and usher in abundance for his people, fully and finally. We're going to spend the bulk of our time there, which will cause us to consider both divine retribution and God's judgment. These topics are challenging and can raise a lot of questions for us, but I invite you to stay the course and trust the Spirit with me as we think on these things together. We are considering a lot of big things in chapter 3, ultimate things. Before we get into the text, let's begin with a few framing thoughts. Our Bibles typically use the word great instead of the word big, unless it's talking about big toes. Believe me, I've searched Bible Gateway. But I think the word great has lost some of its meaning in our modern language. We use the word great to describe anything from a mountain to an ice cream cone. We even use great sarcastically when we're responding to an unwanted nuisance. The same goes for the word awesome, which biblically means something that causes us us to fear, be totally astonished by, or be in awe of. In our language today, it's just another way of saying we think something's cool or noteworthy. So, instead of the words great or awesome, I'll be using the words big and bigness to drive my point home a little more. As you listen today, listen for our big God. My main idea today is this. God's bigness compels us to grow in awe, love justice, and long for the day of Christ. God's bigness calls for a response. Let me say that again. My main idea for today is this. God's bigness compels us to grow in awe, love justice, and long for the day of Christ. 
Now, it's going to take us a little while to get there, but stick with me. I've broken up the text into two main sections. Part one is verses 1 through 16, which I'm calling Big Judgment for God's Enemies. Part two is verses 17 to 21, Big Blessings for God's People. Within those two sections, I'll walk through the passage a few verses at a time, and then we'll end up with some applications. That's where the main idea will come back in, but keep your ears open for God's bigness as we mine the text. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Show yourself big to us today. Be near as we engage with your living word. Meet those of us with questions in our hearts about your character and answer them by your Holy Spirit. Grow us in awe, stir our hearts towards justice, and awaken our longings for your return. Amen. All right, let's jump into part one. Big judgment for God's enemies. This is chapter 3, verses 1 through 16, but I'm going to start by reading verses 1 through 8. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there, on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land, and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute, and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. All right. The opening of chapter 3 here refers back to the last verses of chapter 2. In those days and at that time refers to the day of the Lord in chapter 2, verse 31. God has promised that those who call on him and those that he calls will escape judgment and be saved. Verse 1 adds that their fortunes will be restored as well. All good news for God's people, but for those who have oppressed God's people, not so much. The scenario would not have been a surprise to the Israelites because it's one Moses foretold back in Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 10. Those who repent and choose to keep the covenant with God are promised restored fortunes, a return from exile, curses on their enemies who persecuted them, and abundance and fertility, livestock, and land. All things similar to what we see in the text here. Faithful Israelites would likely have heard this text and cheered. God's going to act on what he promised. God says in verse 2 that he will gather all the oppressors into what's called the Valley of Jehoshaphat, later referred to as the Valley of Decision. The Hebrew word Jehoshaphat means Yahweh has judged, so as scholars don't know the actual physical location of this valley, it's likely that the name is symbolic for the judgment that will happen there. Justice will be served in the valley, and will be served from God himself. Now this is important. This is God showing his bigness. In the Old Testament, God often caused Israel to fight their enemies or causes plagues to fall on them, like the locust plague described at the beginning of Joel. He often warns of these judgments through the prophets. This time, though, it's God himself that will exercise judgment. He's coming personally to right this wrong, and that is a scary prospect indeed. 
God gives very specific reasons in the text for his judgment. Verse 2 tells us he's representing his people, or his heritage, Israel. We read on to find that these nations have scattered the Israelites, divided up their promised land, and cast lots for the Israelites, which likely refers to the way they were bought as slaves, and traded human beings for sex and wine. God mentions the nations of Tyre, Sidon, and Philistia specifically. You can see a map of these nations in my slides, which are linked in the show notes. Tyre and Sidon were coastal cities with rocky relations with Israel. Much of their relations were based on trade. Both cities had centers for idol worship. Philistia was a longtime enemy of Israel. Samson notably warred against them. The whole lighting foxes' tails on fire and burning their crops and the donkey jawbone incident and the temple crushing. Read Judges 15 to 16. Our old pal Goliath was a Philistine as well, and David and Saul both spent time battling them. What God accuses these nations of specifically here is taking his things, his physical treasures like silver and gold, and most importantly, his people, and he won't sit idly by. Commentator David Hubbard says, Scarcely anything rankles God more than inhumanity. God goes Papa Bear on the nations when they treat his people as subhuman. He shows his bigness. Look at verse 4. Here's my paraphrase. What are you to me, little nations? How dare you? The power you think you wield over my people is nothing compared to the power that I wield over you. God declares twice in this section, in verses 4 and 7, that he'll return their payment on their own heads. This is an example of what's called divine retribution, which I mentioned earlier. Or another way to say it is God delivering the consequences that he decides are due in response to human evil. Think an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth from Leviticus. Leviticus 24, 17 through 20 says this, Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. There is a connection between act and effect. Think back to middle school science and Newton's third law. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. There's accountability built into God's law. The specific retribution here in Joel is hard for us to pick up on unless we dig a little. The Israelites, who were desert people, were traded and sold to sea people, Tyre and Sidon. God's specific retribution is that those sea people will now be sold to the Sabaeans, who are desert people. So God's being very specific in his retribution. The whole notion of retribution is uncomfortable to talk about, but let's consider it for a few minutes. If God's intention is to have all the world full of his people, people who call on his name and see him as big and trust him as ruler of the world, then it follows that those who do not call on him would not be included in that world and must be dealt with for their refusal to worship Yahweh, the one true God. It can seem like God is being rash or angry in his judgment against people we read about in the Bible. What about grace, we cry? What about forgiveness? Well, how might a big God deal with big sin problems? Probably in a big way, in an ultimate way. God sees the world in each situation in a way that we can never see and makes judgments that are perfectly fitting despite our human opinions. We must be careful not to put our own human experience of being angry or wanting revenge for injustice on God when we're reading. Our human anger is not like God's anger. 
The New Dictionary of Biblical Theology describes God's anger as excluding the fitfulness, arbitrariness, waywardness, and foolishness that disfigures human anger. Our anger is disfigured, but God's is not. When God executes his wrath, it is a declaration of true justice and expression of his holiness. His wrath reestablishes righteousness, brings stability and closure to those in crisis, and brings hope. Take a minute to think on this. Does God's anger make you uncomfortable? Does it seem to oppose his love? If so, we have misunderstood God's love. The opposite of anger or wrath is not love, it's apathy. We don't want an apathetic God, and by the looks of Joel, we certainly don't have one. Bible scholar Tim Mackey says that when God executes judgment, he is expressing love towards both the oppressed and the oppressor. It would be unloving to be apathetic, to not care whether people do right or wrong. God is not like that. He cares deeply about justice and making all the wrongs right and the sad things untrue, as Tolkien puts it. He aims to restore. The Baker Bible Dictionary says retribution is an application of God's holiness that purifies the world for his kingdom of peace. More on that later. I'll pose the question another way. Does it make you uncomfortable when it seems like you and God have come to a different conclusion about what someone deserves, whether in the Bible or in life? The core problem in this discussion about wrath and retribution is that we aren't God and we wish we were. God rendering judgment exposes us, and we hate it. We want others to pay for what they've done, but we don't want to pay. I think it also makes us uncomfortable when we don't have all the information that God has. Again, we aren't God. How do we know what's happening is really just? It often doesn't seem that way. This line of thinking is common for me, maybe you too. It goes all the way back to the garden where Eve first questioned God's character. Is God really just, I ask myself. Look at this world. How can he just stand by and not do anything when sin is running rampant? But then I imagine God's big booming voice directed at me as it was to Job. Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who argues with God give an answer. Then I think about my sin, which still runs rampant within me. I simply can't answer God. How dare I correct him? I don't have a better judgment or a better solution than God in any situation I find myself in. I know very little. I see dimly and I judge with bias. And I would guess you'd say the same is true of you. Friends, we must train our hearts and minds to trust the Lord, the all-knowing, all-seeing, big God of the universe. When we remember who he is, as he reveals himself in his word, we can trust that all his judgments are good and right and true even when they appear harsh to us. Remember, God's ultimate goal in judgment is to bring his true people to himself by grace, to be God in the eyes of all the world, as John Piper has said. God intervenes, however necessary, to tell people when they are going the wrong way so they can turn from the way of death and receive life in relationship with him. Let's keep reading. Verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. 
Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. So big news. War and harvest are coming. This is God's next proclamation. He tells the nations to consecrate for war versus consecrating for fasting and mourning for Israel in their previous chapters. He's essentially telling them to bring it on. Give me everything you got, nations. See if you've got what it takes to come up against this big God. Zoom in on verse 10. It's a wild and ironic reversal of a famous line from Isaiah 2.4 and Micah 4.3. Those prophets describe the nations beating their weapons into farm equipment and living in peace. But in Joel, God says to do this, the opposite. They're going to need every weapon they have and then some. They'll have to turn their tools into weapons and bring even the weak along with them to war. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be the weak person with a weird homemade weapon who is going up against God Almighty. Game over, I think. This is a big God. God's own warriors come down to meet the nations in the valley, where God says again that he himself will judge the nations. Notice that for all the war language, we don't actually see a battle scene play out here. My interpretation is that there's no battle because there's no competition. God is sitting. He's not in a battle stance because he's not threatened. He's the authority over all involved. God, the warrior judge, is ready to give the verdict. And what does he say? He says, the harvest is ripe. Whoa, scene change. Yahweh turns from warrior to farmer. And we're back to the farming metaphors we've seen throughout Joel. The Bible is full of these agrarian metaphors because the Israelites were agrarian people. They worked the land. When God says the harvest is ripe, they would have taken that to mean the end is near. A sickle was the tool used for cutting down ripe grain, thus ending its connection with the earth. And treading the winepress could only happen when the grapes had been removed from the vine. Harvest was typically a time of celebration, joy, and thanksgiving. All the effort throughout the year moved toward harvest. It was a big job. So too, the harvest of the earth is going to be a big job reserved for a big God. Evil will reach a boiling point. God's benevolent patience will end. And as Revelation 14 describes, the son of man and his angels will go to work harvesting the earth and throwing grapes into the winepress of the wrath of God. This is a sobering thought but also can come as a comfort to us as Christians in this mess of a world. When we see sin all around us, we may lament and despair regularly, but we have hope. We know God keeps his word, and evil will be dealt with decisively. The sin of this generation is not yet complete, but one day it will be. God will deal with it fully and finally. Until then, we cry out, how long, and yearn for the big return of Christ. More on this in a minute. Let us read on. Verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. The images in this section are striking. Picture it. Tons of people pouring into a valley. The Hebrew word for multitude is hamon and carries the meaning of a roaring, noisy, rumbling crowd. 
They're coming to be judged by the God of the universe, a frightening proposition. The sun and the moon go dark, no stars. It's completely black, total madness. Suddenly a roar rips through the valley and the heavens and earth shake. It's unmistakably God. We're going to stop for a minute to talk about the day of the Lord, which Joel is describing here. You've heard about it in earlier teachings, but I want to zero in on it again. The day of the Lord is a phrase used across the Bible to refer to a specific day or days when God will judge his enemies. Because of the time in history that we're in right now, post-resurrection, we tend to think that all references to the day of the Lord are referring to the second coming of Jesus, which I'll call the day of Christ. But this interpretation is a little off. There have been many days of the Lord in Israel's history when God brought judgment on oppressive nations like Babylon and Assyria or on the Israelites themselves. So some of the references to the day of the Lord in the scriptures are referring to those past events. Some are referring to future events. Some are a mix of both, and some are highly symbolic. The Old Testament prophets describe the various days of the Lord as days of distress for some, but days of freedom for others. God alone is exalted on these days, and idols fall. Descriptions include wailing, terror, anguish, fire, blood, darkness, war, pestilence, famine, and destruction. It's often described as very near or coming quickly. The New Testament epistles and Jesus himself talk about a coming day of judgment, which we know to be the day of Christ, the final day of the Lord. We can't know with confidence which signs from the Old Testament will apply to the day of Christ, but we can understand the general idea of what is to come and what the day of the Lord tells us about God's character. David Hubbard says that the ultimate characteristic of the day is God's renewed, restored, permanent presence with his people. God is making a big return to be with us forever. That is the crucial thing to take hold of. But the question becomes, why should we think about the day of the Lord or day of Christ if it's impossible to know when it will come? Why consider these things at all? I believe the day of the Lord urges us toward three things. It urges us to repent and tell others to do the same. If you're still here listening to a talk about the day of the Lord, that means that Christ has not yet returned. So there's still time to repent and avoid destruction on that day. We are waiting for the day of Christ as the Israelites were waiting for the day of the Lord. And God says repeatedly that the day is near. So that should compel us to tell others and soon. It also urges us to resist the culture of the world. The day of the Lord is a promise that God's going to free us from this world of corruption. Because we're in Christ, we don't have to wait to flee from worldly practices and thought patterns. We have the ability right now to resist the devil and his schemes and pursue holiness. Lastly, it urges us to remember our hope. The day of the Lord is not just about destruction. True, there is a lot of horrible stuff going down in these descriptions. But on the other side is the big restoration of all things. Big rest, big peace, and forever together with our big God. We can get excited and we can get ready. I love how Hubbard puts it. On behalf of all God's people, Joel saw that day and sang of it. From him we can learn the tune which we are to be ready to sing whenever the Sovereign Lord is ready to give the cue. Oh, that we might learn all Joel's tune and be ready to sing when that day arrives. How sweet the sound. And now for a turning point. Verse uh, 16, part B. But the Lord, Yahweh, is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. 
We're coming off these wild Day of the Lord images, and even though at the end of chapter 2 God promised he'd protect his people, that was some scary stuff he just said. They might be questioning it all a bit in their hearts, as we all do. So he reminds them again, Yahweh is your refuge and stronghold. Take a deep breath, Israel. You're good. God being a refuge and stronghold is something that we could easily skip by. We get it. We hear it in all the songs on the Christian radio and have the psalm-bedecked trinkets from the Christian bookstore. But I won't let us pass by this good news. The Hebrew word for refuge here is maxe, meaning a shelter from rain, storm, or danger. A refuge is bigger than you. It covers you, but you have to seek it out and get under it. Psalm 73 says it is good to be near God. Amen? We can dwell safely in his shelter, make our home in his shadow. He delivers us, covers us, protects us from both physical and spiritual storms. The Hebrew word for stronghold is ma'uz, meaning a place of safety or protection. A stronghold is bigger than you. It keeps you safe. Psalm 27 says we have nothing to fear when God is our stronghold. He protects, helps, delivers, and saves his people simply because they've chosen him as their safe place. Refuge. Stronghold. Taking refuge in God is a choice. We don't have to do it. Often we find ourselves trying to find shelter under much smaller things that we think will save us. It's like choosing to stand outside in a hurricane under an umbrella instead of walking into the safety of a secure and spacious stone castle. We don't have to be pelted with rain and blown about by the storms of life when we have the free offer of God as our shelter. There's room enough for all of us under God's protection. Now, with that foundation of security for his people, God brings out his big promises in the last half of chapter 3. We've seen locusts, famine, death, destruction, war, judgment. Now we see what it's ultimately pointing to for the people who have chosen Yahweh. Big blessings. That moves us into part 2. Let's read verse 17. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. God says all these intense scenes of judgment and salvation, and the actual events they point to, are meant to lead to a knowledge that Yahweh is the one true God, the great King, the big one. He says he's chosen Jerusalem as his dwelling place, and he calls it Zion, which can be translated as sunny mountain from the Hebrew. Psalm 48 says Zion is God's forever fortress, holy mountain, the city of the great king, which brings joy to all the earth. Jeremiah calls Zion God's habitation of righteousness and holy hill. Psalm 125 says Zion won't move and that those who trust in God won't move either. The fact that Zion is a mountain is significant. Mountains in the Bible are associated with endurance, stability, and security. God's presence came down on Mount Sinai when he gave Moses the law. Mountains were used by other ancient religions as places of worship, and God redeems that pagan practice by choosing a mountain as his ultimate dwelling place. What will this Zion mountain city be like? The primary characteristic of this new kind of city will be that it is holy. Zion will be set apart, totally different than any earthly city because God is there. It simply has to be if God is present. He's unable to tolerate sin. The New Dictionary of Biblical Theology says, the notion of a holy God among holy people in a holy place is the enduring eschatological hope of the scriptures. 
Zion is our hope, and the day of Christ will usher it in. Verse 17 says, strangers will no longer pass through it. The theme of Zion staying clean and all unclean things remaining outside is pervasive in the scriptures. Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Obadiah all mention it, and it is explicit in Revelation. Revelation 21-27 says, Nothing unclean will ever enter the holy city. And Revelation 22-15 says that outside the gates of the city are dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. This means human beings must be holy to enter Zion, the mountain city. More on that in a bit. Verse 18 tells us more about what Zion will be like. It says, And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. What a picture of abundance and bigness. God says the land will be fertile and abundant, overflowing with milk and wine. There will be a fountain flowing from the house of the Lord, flowing out into the valley of Shittim, which refers to a valley of acacia trees. Acacias grow in dry soil, so the imagery here suggests that there is living water flowing from Yahweh's house, and it will water the dry places. What a picture of the gospel. Jeremiah calls himself the fountain Jeremiah calls God himself the fountain of living water. And Jesus tells the woman at the well that living water comes from him. God is not only our refuge and stronghold, but our very source of life, earthly and eternal. This passage is in contrast to the locust destruction in Joel 1. The damage has been undone and abundantly so. When God is with his holy people in his holy place, the struggle for peace, water, and food is over. Seems like this would be a great note to end on, right? Ties up nicely with a bow. It's where Hollywood might start rolling the credits. But God has just a few more things to say. Verse 19. Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness. For the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood on their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever in Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged. For the Lord dwells in Zion. Now, I said this whole second part was about big blessings. Those verses I just read didn't really have the beautiful imagery that verses 17 and 18 had, but bear with me. In light of our discussion about retribution at the beginning of the talk, I think we can see that God and Israel would consider destroying their enemies as a big blessing to them. Living under the rule of a just God is a blessing. So here's God's sobering review in the final verses. Israel's enemies will be destroyed for the way they treated God's people. Big destruction, no abundance or fertility for Israel's oppressors. Egypt and Edom are mentioned specifically for killing innocent Israelites. In contrast to their oppressors, Judah and Jerusalem will be inhabited forever. God will set things right for them fully and finally. Lastly, God declares vengeance against vengeance again on innocent Israelite blood. The original hearers would be cheering at this verse because at that point, God had not avenged the innocent blood. The tragedies that befell Israel in Joel's time remained unanswered. But God will not leave their crimes unpunished forever. Surely not. Yahweh dwells in Zion, he declares. The great king is in his holy city. He is with his people. They are safe, defended, and protected. Justice and goodness reign. Where God is, evildoers cannot be. 
God is blessing his people by taking big action against evil. This is not the soft, fuzzy, lovey-dovey God that our culture often depicts. This is God the Avenger. And we want a God like this, do we not? We want him to come to our aid in our times of trouble. We want him to act decisively when evil runs rampant in the world. This is one of the reasons we get mad at him or lose trust in him, because evil is still here. We want a God who cares big about justice, and he shows here in Joel that he does. But here's the crazy part. God will ultimately give evildoers what they deserve, but he will also give many, many evildoers what they do not deserve. God's ultimate response to sin was not to bring the hammer down and destroy us all, but to give the gift of Jesus and with him the opportunity to repent. God is wildly patient with us. His justice is restorative and full of grace, even though we don't deserve it. If you've spent more than a few years as a Christian, it is embarrassingly easy to forget that we were once enemies of God, that apart from Jesus, we would be rightfully under God's wrath. Jesus was the only truly righteous one the only one who deserves a place in Zion. He did life on earth perfectly right, a thing none of us could dream of achieving. He died in our place, rose from the dead, and offered that perfect life to us. Now all of us get a chance to be reconciled to God and live with him forever. That is big. As Hebrews 10.19 says, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. So a big God will bless his people in a big way, fully and finally, by bringing them into his holy city, providing for all their needs and destroying every enemy. How the first hearers of Joel must have been comforted and strengthened by these verses. And we can be too when we think on how Christ bought us entrance into Zion with his blood. But we can take away more than just comfort from this passage. I've asked you to look for and consider the bigness of God and to think about how we might live with this humble perspective with God very big and us very small. I don't believe God wants us to wait until Jesus returns, when his bigness will be most obvious to us, for God to be big in our lives. As we close, I want to return to the big idea for today and offer three next steps. Number one, grow in awe of our big God. The book of Joel has been full of God's bigness. What place do we give this big God in our lives? Do we put him at center where he belongs or relegate him to the sidelines? Does he consume our thoughts? Does he guide our decisions? Is he our delight, our joy? Do we look forward to spending time with him each day? For me, the answer is that's how I want it to be, but I fall short. If I'm honest, I have to admit that I do sometimes put God to the side in favor of other things. I do push my time with him to when it's more comfortable or convenient. And when I do so, that's evidence to me that I'm not thinking about God as big. If I considered him that way, I wouldn't push him to the margins of my life. But here's good news for me and for you. We don't have to muster up this awe on our own. We can't. Left to our own devices, we're proud, self-focused, navel-gazers. But thanks be to God, we have the Holy Spirit inside us, sanctifying us. In John 14, 26, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would teach us all things. That includes how to honor God, how to grow in humility, and to live in awe of Him. The Holy Spirit lifts our eyes up off of ourselves and onto our big God. Well, what does this look like practically? How does the Spirit do this? A few that spring to mind for me are reading the Bible, looking specifically for God's character and His mighty works of redemption, communing with God's people, 
listening for ways the God's at work in the lives of others and praising him together in corporate worship. This one's been made a little harder by COVID, but still possible to make meaningful connections through technology. And considering creation, contemplating the God who made our amazing world with just his words. This doesn't mean you should drop what you're doing and fly to the Grand Canyon, though that sounds lovely. We can see God's bigness in small everyday things like ladybugs and baby toes and green grass. Evidence of God's miraculous work is all around us. We must look for it, talk about it, share it with others, and thank God in prayer. As we do, God will take up more and more of the central space that he deserves in our lives. So that's the first way I think we can respond to God's bigness in Joel, by growing in awe. Secondly, I propose that we can love justice in a big way. Our God cares for justice in a big way, and we are called to do the same. Psalm 33, 5 says God loves righteousness and justice. The prophets Hosea, Amos, and Micah call God's people God's people to do justice with God's help. Since I originally made my notes for this talk back in January of 2020, our world has seen an uptick in tension around the topic of justice. Things have gotten messier than ever. We know God's ultimate justice is coming, but until then, we work toward it here on earth. This can be tricky because we tend to create our own versions of justice that benefit us and not others. But if we have accepted Jesus' life in faith and are positioning ourselves humbly under God's good rule, then the Spirit compels us to live a life of justice and righteousness. This looks like loving our neighbor as ourselves and making other people's problems our problems, as the Bible Project says. This is a radical way of living, but it's the way of Jesus. I think there are a few groups in particular that the church can come alongside in the fight for justice. Three populations that come to mind most readily for Dayton are people of color, substance users and those in recovery, and orphans and foster children. If you are new to the plight of any of these groups, I've included some starter resources in each, for each in the show notes. It may not be easy or comfortable to make our neighbors' problems our problems, but living this way, prioritizing the just treatment of others, reflects the way of Jesus to a watching world. Now I realize I've just thrown these out and that they are big jobs. It may seem like anything we would do would only be a drop in the bucket. But be encouraged. Our justice efforts don't need to be big. God delights in every small step towards justice and righteousness. When the amount of justice work is overwhelming and we are tempted to despair, we remember the cross and we remember the coming day of Christ. Second Peter 3 says the day of the Lord will come like a thief, but we ought to pursue godliness and holiness while we wait for it. As we await the day of the Lord, we work here on earth as God's ambassadors of justice. So the second way to respond to God's bigness is to love justice. We grow in awe. We love justice, and lastly, we long for the day of Christ. We've talked a lot today about the fearful aspects of the day of Christ, but let us remember, that day will be a day of rejoicing for those of us in Christ. It is a day the saints have been longing for since Jesus told the disciples he was coming back soon. Think of the martyrs in Revelation 6 calling out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Do we share their desire? Do we long to finally see Jesus, for God to make everything right once and for all? Whether we recognize it or not, God has put eternity in our hearts. The eternal longing is there, but we often try to ease it with things that are not God. 
So how do we practically fill our longing with Jesus and not other things while we wait for him to come back? Three places to start. We read the Bible. I can't say it enough. Bible reading puts us in our right minds as Christians. It reminds us that Jesus really is coming back. It teaches us by the power of the Spirit how to live in light of Jesus' return. The Word also calls us to a life of holiness. Though we'll never experience perfection here on earth, the logic follows that the more sanctified we become in our life with Jesus, the more we may experience glimpses of what life will be like in the New Jerusalem, where everything is holy. Secondly, we practice Sabbath rest. I don't have time here to get into the ins and outs of Sabbath and the many ways it blesses us as Christians, but I do want to present it to you as a way to enjoy the not yet in the already. God gave us the Sabbath to enjoy Him, to worship Him, and to rest from our work. Practically, it looks like setting aside one day a week or a shorter period of time, if you're just starting out, to stop normal activities and focus on God. Sabbath is a foretaste of our future with God. It's a little preview of what it will be like to enter into our promised rest. In Christ, we already have access to so many of the things that we long for when we think about the new heavens and the new earth, namely rest, joy, and peace. We don't have them in an ultimate way, but we have God, the Spirit, dwelling inside us. Setting aside a day to rest and honor Him weekly directs our hearts toward what's to come. Check the show notes for more Sabbath resources. Lastly, pray for the mindset of a sojourner. A sojourner is someone who resides in a place temporarily. In Hebrews 11, we get a peek into the mindset of Abraham the sojourner. The writer of Hebrews says Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God, seeking a homeland and desiring a better country, a heavenly one. As we meet God in prayer, we can ask him to give us that same holy longing for the new Jerusalem, our future homeland and so sustain us while we continue to labor here on earth. Philippians 3.20 says that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Prayer is challenging for all of us at times, but a prayer as simple as, Come, Lord Jesus, helps remind us that Jesus is coming back, and all his promises will one day come true for citizens of heaven. So if you find yourself lacking in longing, Try opening your Bible, practicing the Sabbath, and praying as a sojourner who's longing for her forever home. And one more time, the big idea for applying this chapter of Joel has been this. God's bigness compels us to grow in awe, love justice, and long for the day of Christ. Now, we'll end right where we began. God's purpose in all things locust plagues, days of the Lord, and the troubles and trials we endure in this life. His purpose is to make known who he is to his people. When we see him and know him as he has revealed himself, our big God, we will stand in awe. We will humble ourselves before him, and we will serve him and worship him until he returns. To encourage our thoughts toward the bigness of God, I'll close by reading from Daniel 7. Daniel's vision of the coming of the Son of Man, the name our Savior was so fond of using for himself. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning with fire. 
stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Amen and amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus.